Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Chapter 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This is a Roman introduction to an academic piece. Um, as with beginning any book of the Bible, we're going to take a little more time to get context for the book, who it is, who the author is, and those pieces. But the what I just read you is all one sentence, and it's a very formalized sentence that does a lot of work academically. Academics in the first century didn't look like they do today, but there are some similarities there. Being a former academic, you know, in my sinful old life, um, I recognize this, and I actually really appreciate it, because this is an extremely different gospel from Matthew and Mark. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we're hitting the third of the synoptic gospels. Luke is a scholar, and he's trained in the professional, detailed record-keeping of the first century. So when he approaches this, he's coming at it saying, there are other Gospels out there, there are other accounts of this, but my account's different in some very certain ways. So Luke was a trained doctor, and you'd say, well, he was a medical doctor. He traveled with Paul. He was known for that sort of thing. But in that era, a learned person outside of scriptural rabbinical teaching was a doctor. And they were to know medicine, they were to know academia, they were to know all the different fields that existed, philosophy. So if you were a medical doctor, you were a learned person, and the expectation is you knew more than just medicine because you had this role in society. They hadn't differentiated the academic fields as much. There was an academic form and format that Luke knows because he was a physician, but he's also a historian in this sense, and he treats his gospel like that. So where it says in verse 1, in so much as many have taken in hand, well, who are the many people? Who else has taken in hand the accounting of Jesus Christ? This dates it in the sense that there's clearly other people that have attempted to write a book about Jesus. And he's aware of that, and he's acknowledging it. Um, this is context. In today's academia, usually you, you announce, or when you go to an author or a publisher, you say, I'm aware of these other five books that are out there. Here's how mine is different. And so when you make a proposal to write a book to a publisher, you have to, know, you have to show them that you understand other people have authored on this topic. And so you are in the field, so to speak. What he's referring to likely is Matthew and Mark, which apparently Luke was then written after those. People believe Mark was written first, then Matthew gave a more detailed account, then Luke's account is the most detailed of all four Gospels. And so each one's making an effort going, and likely they read Mark, and Matthew's thinking, Mark, you left out a bunch of stuff. And so he adds in those pieces. These three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. There's over 30 stories that are shared between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and when you see that, and, and you look at how detailed this is, then people like say, wow, these, they're all copying each other. 
or, and, and this is, I think, an Occam's razor, or they actually are reporting the same set of events that were witnessed by them. So they're telling the same stories. But the form of those stories and the actual wording of them, yes, in the same way that Chronicles is pulling things out of Kings, Luke is pulling things out of Mark and Matthew. However, there's original material in Luke too that people are like, well, where did that come from? So scholars, modern scholars have said, well, that's the quell. There must have been another book out there that Luke's pulling from. But that makes a huge assumption. The quell, first of all, if you ever hear of the quell, this imaginary book that's out there somewhere, it doesn't actually exist, or at least we've never found a copy of it. But they're assuming that Luke wasn't capable of recording events all by himself. They're assuming that everything in Luke had to be taken from somewhere because he took things that are clearly coming out of Mark and coming out of Matthew, but then there's this original content. They're assuming it had to be another source. But Luke, I think, in his intro is pointing out the fact that he's talking to, in verse 2, eyewitnesses. So he's doing his own research and his own interviews to grab things. So there's an equally plausible perspective, which is the quell doesn't exist. It's a complete fabrication. And Luke simply is a researcher and a historian gathering stories that are original to add to and fill in gaps that he perceived. That said, they're all reporting on the same person. So you got Mark who's writing from Rome in the West. Matthew likely wrote from Syria in the East. And Luke is writing from Caesarea in Israel, where everybody was still at. And so you have these, these kinds of things. Mark is often associated, if you look at Ezekiel 1.10, it might be good to see this as we're looking at doing our third gospel now. Ezekiel 1.10 presents these creatures that have four faces. And all four of the creatures are in the likeness of a man. And many people believe that the Ezekiel 1 passage is about the four gospels, four presentations of Jesus Christ that come forward. And they all have a different focus. Mark focuses on the royalty of Jesus, that he's the king of, of all eternity. And so he's associated with the lion of Judah. Matthew focuses on a new human kingdom, a new kingdom on earth. And he gets associated with the human with wings. Not an angel, a human, and all the critters have wings. And then you get Luke. Luke's focus as a gospel is going to be on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he fulfills all these things. And we see kind of an mention of that right in the intro, verse 1. All these things which have been fulfilled among us. So he's making a reference to how Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system. He is the complete consummation of it. And his image is that of the ox in there. And then you get John. Completely different gospel. Focus on Jesus as divine. Where Matthew focuses on Jesus as a man. John focuses on Jesus as a divine being on earth. And he gets associated with the eagle, or that which flies, like the Holy Spirit. So that's called the tetramorph. And the tetramorph is a, a theological concept that comes from Ezekiel 1, where there's these four-faced presentations of a man. And the Gospels then become that, for early Christians, they believe that was the fulfillment. The Gospels are these four creatures that go over to the ends of the earth and present the, this man to the world. And the Gospels become that. This is part of why Quell becomes a counter-biblical perspective, even though we have biblical scholars talking about it. Quell messes up the Tetrarch. Now we have five accounts. And you got to just make one up to do it, but it messes up some of the symmetry between those things. So the same truth is being there. It's still framing the truth. There's different audiences for each of the Gospels. And there are witnesses that are being taken into account. So... 
the direct reason where Luke is getting some of these things is that it's being shared widely amongst the church slightly after Matthew and Mark write their gospel. These are things that witnesses have had. Also, one of the requirements to have witnesses is that you need two or more witnesses. Just as verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, plural. You have to have two or more to confirm something. So there may be stories that aren't included in Luke that are included in Mark and Matthew because Mark writing for Peter and Matthew writing for himself are giving their own testimony. So it's a witness of an, in and of themselves where Luke as a scholar has to confirm everything that goes in his gospel. So there's going to be some stories that Matthew tells or that Peter tells about the transfiguration where Luke doesn't have a confirmation of that. He doesn't necessarily have a second person that can do it, so he leaves it out of his gospel. And so what he's doing is giving these strongest claims that can be made about Jesus, the things that can be confirmed by people that were there. And he's always, as a scholar in the first century, looking for two or more witnesses. That said, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four witnesses of Jesus Christ. Double what you need to be a confirmed legal account to make something true in a legal sense. So he says, to set in order a narrative... I like this. It's commentary on the other two. One of Luke's issue with perhaps Matthew and Mark is they're not in order, right? They tell stories based on themes. There's collection of stories, but they're not chronological, and they don't make that claim. So one of the critiques of the Gospels is, well, why does Luke have this story in front of that story, but Matthew has this story in front of that story, with the assumption that everybody in the fourth story was worried about chronology. But Matthew and Mark make no claims to chronology. Luke does. So when there's a difference between when the stories are told or what city they're told in, right, it could be the case that Jesus told the same parable in multiple cities. So it's not that one's wrong and one's right. There is a viable possibility that Jesus used some of the same stories to teach. And any public speaker will tell some of the same stories because that's public speaking. So you get that kind of thing. And then in addition to chronology, Luke's critique of those is he's writing to set things in order. Like, he's writing the gospel that should go into the temple records, right? Matthew's stuff is great. He makes his case for the kingdom of God. Mark's stuff is great. He makes the case for the, you know, the royalty of Jesus Christ. But it's time to do this the right way. And this is what scholars do. They look at the hacks doing their stuff, and the scholars come in and say, there's a better way to do this. And so Luke's saying this needs to be properly documented. It needs to be properly written. He's going to set things in order. So when there's a conflict between Matthew and Luke, I would lean to Luke when it comes to chronology, when it comes to what was said out of somebody's mouth. So the, the criti- critics will say, well, this person said this sentence, and in Luke it's this sentence, and they're different sentences. I'd go with Luke because Luke's making the claim that he's doing it right. And with Matthew, I'd be like, okay, what's the point of the sentence? Why is Matthew putting that in there? But with Luke, I would treat it more like a historical document. For some people, that puts them at ease. Some people want the, the image of Jesus in Luke. Some people want the meaning of Jesus with Matthew. Some people want the impact of Jesus with Mark. Some people just want to know what happened with Luke. Give me just the straight story. And what does that look like? So Luke isn't going to try to impress The very first four sentences are a formal account. They're one big sentence. I think Luke is saying, I have the ability to write like a scholar, but because this is research based on interviews, I'm going to give you the story of Jesus through the words of the people that said it. So there's a transition from four to five where he goes from this high academic language to very common plain spoken language. And it's not that Luke can't do the academic ease, 
It's that he's reporting interviews and he's recording it that way. So you have this kind of thing. Mark is likely writing on account of Peter. Matthew writes for his own. Luke writes for everybody that's telling the story. So this is why we start with the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? He's starting at the very beginning of when God interceded in human history. It happened here. This was the first miraculous moment. It was Zacharias in the temple. And so he starts at a very different place than the other things. He also says things which have been fulfilled. Do you see that? He's going to focus on the sacrificial fulfillment of Jesus. Even for a non-Jewish writer, this is really compelling. Jesus fulfills prophecy. This is still an, an apologetic for us today. The amount of fulfilled prophecy is staggering in Jesus Christ. That alone, even for a non-Jew, should blow our minds. Like this was predicted beforehand. Steph was talking about how she would read through the Old Testament and she saw Cyrus being mentioned. And you just read past it. Well, well they're just saying Cyrus. But then it, it hit her when she was reading back through Ezra and Nehemiah that that actually happened before this. And the fact that God named Cyrus years before mm. Cyrus actually was born and rose to the throne is amazing. And even Cyrus was like, wow, your ancient prophecies say my name? in them. And so even for a non-Jew, this becomes an, a striking moment where, oh, wow, only God could do this. So Luke's going to emphasize that. Genesis shows God is sovereign and we need to be saved. The Old Testament shows every human effort to save themselves doesn't work. And the, the Old Testament also, along with that, says, but Messiah's coming. Luke comes in and he's going to make reference to hundreds of promise, promises that are getting fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Nearly every line, like Matthew, is connecting something to a promise that's been fulfilled. And so he says it right up front. This is the theme of his book. This is how he's going to write it. There is a conservative rounding down at least 300 direct references to Messiah that get fulfilled in the story of Jesus Christ. And if you go to J. Barton Payne, he counts allusions to Messiah or images of Messiah. He says there's 574 connections between the Old Testament and the book of Luke. So, and, and Alfred Edersheim says, well, if we, if we include just direct references to Messiah, but also direct references to the end of ages or the end of days, he counts 456 references in the Old Testament. So it's not like there was one prophecy written with, you know, Confucius or, um, you know, what's the other one that shows up in the cheap tabloid newspapers all the time? Conf yeah. Anyways, we'll get there. I should have actually written this down. But in short, Jesus becomes the same sacrifice for the Passover land. It's both eternal in nature and fulfilling because he's a human. It fulfills the means of propitiation that we see in Leviticus. He takes our place as the punishment of sin and he sets everything right. So the animal lamb through the Old Testament is just a symbol. It takes a human to fully account for human sins. You have to do it. The, the rule of propitiation is a human can step in for another human. And I can say that punishment isn't going to land on my kid. I'll take the punishment. My kid can live their life. And that rule of propitiation is exactly what Jesus fulfills. Luke's going to focus on that. Jesus stepped in and said, I'll take the sin for Mandy. And she doesn't have to pay it. She can live her life. I'll take the sin for Dan. He can live his life and I'll take that punishment. So when he dies on the cross, we get the most detailed account of the cross in the book of Luke. We get 
this idea that the gospels show us that a savior showed up, fulfilled the law, all the promises, all the prophecies. That's why Luke says things which have been fulfilled. So as a historian, this is a striking thing that this event happened in human history that fulfills all of these Jewish prophecies. But you don't have to be a Jew to respect that. He also says among us. This is what you call revealing your bias. In an academic paper, if you're going to write about something that you're part of or you're a member of that community that you're writing about, you disclose your bias at the beginning of your research. And you say it. Luke does that. He says, this is among us. It happened amongst him. It's not an issue. He's an insider. He's writing from an insider perspective. And it's only the last 30 years where atheists have said, well, if he was a Christian, he can't possibly write about Christians. He's biased. But bias, when you disclose the bias, does not discount the facts that happened, which Luke focuses on. So he's admitting that he's a believer. He believes in Jesus Christ. We know he hung out with Paul. Paul, Paul called him his beloved physician. So he's a brother. He's academically using his academic skills, and it's really not an issue, and it hasn't been an issue until Richard Dawkins showed up, right? To be writing about something you're actually a part of is not an academic like fault. It, in fact, if you're part of that group, you probably know more about it than if you're outside the group. So we treat, in, in, a, in a whole genre of writing in academia is called a biography or an autobiography where you write about yourself. And people could say, well, you're writing about yourself, so you're disqualified because you're biased. You're writing from your own perspective. But when you call it an autobiography, you're admitting who the author is at the upfront. So the reader knows, okay, well, they're actually part of that community. Verse 2 says, just as. So as close as possible, um, word-for-word word accounts, a record. So he's trying to talk to us just as the people that are part of it have said it. So he's making a claim for that. So again, if a word-for-word word quote is what you're looking for, don't look in Mark and Matthew. Luke makes the claim that it's a word-for-word word quote. He's getting it as accurately as he can. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. His first pertinent person witnesses are people he's looking for. So before everybody grows old and dies in the first century, I'm going to go out and talk to Mary. I'm going to talk to Elizabeth. I'm going to go sit with Zacharias. I'm going to meet with Joseph, but Joseph's dead at this time. So I, to the, whatever degree he could, he's going to get the story from the people who are there. This is why we don't have Joseph's account, but we do have a large account from Mary at the end of this chapter, which we're not getting through today. Don't even think we're getting through 80 verses, right? So, but we're going to get a, a very detailed account because he obviously went and interviewed Mary. And it says, and ministers of the word, those who are going out teaching about Jesus, exhibiting signs of power in the ancient world. So those are his two sources, eyewitnesses and the teachers that are practiced at explaining the story of Jesus Christ. And verse 3, it seemed good to me also. The word also there implies that there's patrons, that somebody's paying for this work to be done. Some people look at Theophilus as that person, that he's being paid to do this because somebody needs to do it. Um, this is, happens throughout history in every situation. When a society has a major event that happens, immediately folks are, are recruited to just document that thing. And that's what's happening with Luke. He's in agreement. Uh, what is needed is an orderly account. The others, by implication, are not that orderly. So he says, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the first. In the English, that sounds very arrogant. In the Greek, the word perfect there means exact or accurate or to be diligently confirmed. 
precise might be a better translation. And some of your Bibles might actually have that. So to have that idea of doing this in a way that is accurate and, and well-documented. You can rely on the book of Luke is what he's saying. An early account is an arrangement of story that has effect in the ancient world. Rome valued accuracy, not story. So when you look at the culture of the day and what they were in, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. He was getting the sense of things, right? So the fact that he wanted to set up his 14, 14, 14, and he could look at sin as a reason to remove somebody from his genealogy. Luke doesn't do that. Luke wants to get it accurately. We're not going to tell a story with our genealogies. We're just going to give an orderly account is what he says here. Um, Rome, you know, he's, he's striking this balance. Um, where Luke becomes the most comprehensive and detailed account of Jesus, he's in a world where you got the Romans saying, if it feels good, do it, and, and power and pride rule in the Roman society. Uh, you know, actually, we're in Pride Month right now, so very Roman-like in that sense. But the Hebrews were stuck in their insane legalism and human tradition. The world needed a savior. And you got everything between the total permissiveness and power and abuse of Rome, and you have the legalism and stodginess of the Jewish people. Where is God in between those? And so Luke's writing in the middle of that context. He'll address both of them. Then you get to Theophilus. Okay, so one, one very popular meaning is Theophilus is the person that's paying for this research to be done. Um, and you'd say, well, if somebody's paying for something, then it can't be true. All of research today in the research community is being supported by grant dollars. There is very few scientists in America today that aren't paid to do their science. So the idea of somebody being paid to do their work being a fault of some sort, again, only Richard Dawkins. you got to be him to find the fault in that. Um, Theophilus, another way to look at it, in the Greek, literally it's translated God lover. So if you make that T from a capital T to a small T, um, Philo is the, the kind of love that's used there. Is Theo is God. Philo is, is brotherly love. So he could be saying, um, when he writes that, he could be reading it as, I want to write for you an orderly account, most excellent God lovers. And he could be writing, that could be saying, I'm addressing the whole church. I'm addressing everybody that wants to find God. And so that's um, an equally viable way to translate that Greek, that it's not a proper name. It's actually saying, I'm writing this for the church. I'm writing this so the church has one account that's in order and everything's put together. I think that's kind of interesting. Also, um, the idea of putting this all together, we know Luke traveled with Paul. We know about the dating of this book would have been about when Paul was going on trial. It could be that the account of Luke and Acts were the preparation to go to court with Paul and make the case for why Paul's talking about Jesus. So it could be that he's writing this particularly for the defense of Paul. That's just a theory. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Um, so if he is writing to the church, that's one thing. If he's writing an orderly account for the defense of Paul, that's another. Or he could just be writing for a patron named Theophilus. So frankly, it doesn't matter that much, but I always go through the different beliefs for you. Verse 4 says, that you may know the certainty. Okay, so this is a first century version of Case for Christ. Like, the whole point of Luke is so that you know that this is irrefutable material. It's fact. So he builds it that way. In this world, to have two witnesses proves it. Luke differs with all the other Gospels on the number of details. This, is, this line makes it obvious why he's doing it. So, in those things which you were instructed... 
implies that he's writing to other believers. You've been taught these things, but now here's a written version of these things. And the being taught by somebody, you have likely when most of us became believers, it was because of another human being telling us about Jesus. Very few people be, like decide to read the Bible and become believers. It's usually somebody you know that you see something in their life that's different than other human beings, and that something is what draws you to reading the Bible. Um, Luke at this time, the book of Luke is not in the Bible, but he is writing something that he wants to be included in your instruction as you do things, so that you may know the certainty, verse 4, of those things in which you were instructed. Those people aren't just telling you fables. So you heard the stories of Jesus, I'm going to document for you so you know those stories are true. In the first century, anybody could have conflicted with Luke, anybody could have challenged what he said. There's no refutation to Luke that we see anywhere near the first century. It takes hundreds of years before somebody has the gall to say this is inaccurate. Right? So he's writing in a generation where anybody who saw something different could have spoke up and written about it and sent letters and tried to remove Luke from the reading list of the church. So there's churches popping up all over the place because of a verbal gospel that's going out. Luke is trying to confirm that verbal gospel of the things in which you were instructed. A Christian audience for people on supporting this witness in an, in an academic-style historical book that emphasizes the Holy Spirit that's active in the church. We're going to see more references to the Holy Spirit in Luke than any other gospel. And part of this is because the Holy Spirit is what's driving the church to be an exploding movement in the first century. And Luke says the Holy Spirit didn't just start with the church. It started with this moment in the temple with a guy named Zacharias. And so we see the theme of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole book. That's my introduction to the book of Luke using Luke's introduction. But now let's get to verse 5. We all in on where he starts. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. That's in 1 Chronicles 24. His wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he introduces two people, and he gives kind of their credibility. You have two people here. That's two witnesses. Um, these are respectable families. To be of the division of Abijah, there were divisions that were established in, in, in Ezra um, that were to be treating in the temple and serving the temple, doing the highest like role of consecration. So they're not people just cleaning up ashes. They're not the gatekeepers necessarily. Uh, this division would have been people that actually go into the Holy of Holies and do things. Zacharias is one of those guys. The days of Herod, they didn't have A.D. and B.C. A.D. stands for Anno Domine, the year of our Lord. It is with the life of Jesus that all of human time is today recorded by, by everyone in the world. Though they've tried to eliminate A.D., they're trying to use common era now. Common to what? Right? The dating started here, but prior to having that dating, and by the way, we see in the Old Testament, they'll say the third year of King David and the fifth year of King Jedekiah. And right at, but with Jesus Christ, he's eternal, so you don't stop his reign. This is the 2023rd year of our Lord. So the reign of Jesus has been eternal, and that's why Christians started to date things that way. Right? So we have, and with a king that doesn't die, you can date everything by Jesus. Um, so that makes a specific rule. Um, it says there's a certain priest. Zacharias is, is an honorable person. He's of the division of Abijah. Um, but this story starts with a specific couple, specific people, both respected, both regarded well. And these people were honored. 
And to be the wife of the daughters of Aaron, even Elizabeth comes from top lineage. She's, she's up there in the sense of the respect and the honor she would have drawn from the world. Verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, and they have honor spiritually. They're both good people. Walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless, they're respectable with Jews. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. One thing is that they hadn't had a kid. And in the first century, that, that was a shameful thing. If you don't have a kid, it must be that God isn't honoring you with a child. And that's tough because we know today that there's scientific reasons for that, um, but we also know that God can change it if he wants to. So the advance of these things are these people are regarded in all senses except for the fact that they hadn't had a kid. So here's what happens, verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, we'll get into what the custom is, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Okay, so... For a Hebrew person, this is so for a non Hebrew, it's like, okay, it's his turn in the temple, whatever that means. For a Hebrew person, only certain priests got to do this. And here's the thing once you got to do this, you retire. So when your lot was drawn, it was done by lot, so you could go through your whole life and never have this honor. But once a year, Yom Kippur, three priests would walk into the temple, two of them got the incense prepared. One of them would simply come with two handfuls of incense, and when the, the coals are set and burning and the incense is ready to go, the other two priests would leave, and only the high priest that was there, only the one that was drawn for that day, would take the two handfuls of incense, put it in the altar, and bow before the Lord and pray to God for the nation. In this moment, um, well, we'll get into that a little bit, um, in this moment, it was definitely an honor for him to go in there. They were selected by lot. Only once in a lifetime do you get to do this. Zacharias as a priest would have looked forward to this moment his whole life. Maybe this year I'll get picked to pray before God. And at the same time, there's a fear of the Lord in this. Because if you do it wrong, the Old Testament has accounts of priests getting killed like that. You dishonor God or do it differently in the face of his holiness, you will perish. And so this is either the last day of my life or it's the best day of my life, right? And I think for a lot of believers, we know that feeling. When you decide to give your life to the Lord, that's the last day of your old life. But you think this, on the other hand, if this goes the way I, my spirit says it's going to go, this could be the beginning of something. This is going to be the best day of my life. So Zacharias goes in. I just want to say that before he goes in, the priesthood would help put these garments on. There's special garments he has to wear. He has to bathe. Leviticus 16 really outlaws this. He gives a sin offering for himself, a burnt offering that goes all the way up to cover his sins. Then he does a burnt offering for his family. Everybody in his family gets covered. Then he does a burnt offering for the whole nation. And the idea is every one of those offerings is covering sin because no human stands in the face of God. The garments are a, a spiritual image of protection. The sacrifices are a spiritual image of protection only because God says so. And God warns in Leviticus 16, if you do it wrong, I will kill you. Do this right because the imagery needs to be perfect. The tradition says, no biblical evidence, that the tradition says they'd tie a rope around the priest so when they went in, if the bells on the hem of their cloak, Exodus 28, if those bells stopped ringing, uh, the guy might be dead. 
And so the rope would be to pull their body out of the Holy of Holies. Um, there's no evidence in this except for in one Jewish text. Other Jewish texts don't include it. I think it's a humorous idea. Uh, but the text says, quote, a knot of rope of gold hangs from his leg from fear perhaps that he would die in the Holy of Holies and they would need to pull him out with his rope. That's in the Akari Mot, verse 198. So there's no confirming that source outside of that, only one witness. Luke doesn't get into it, I think, for that reason. All he says is Zacharias had the honor of going in. So the bells are there. The bells are there so that you can hear the coming and going of the priest. But what would happen is while they're doing the ceremonies with the sacrifices, all the people of God would gather together on Yom Kippur. The courtyard would be packed. And the people of God out there would anxiously be awaiting because this is the one day of the year we commune with God and God promises the Shekinah glory will be there and talk to our priest. They've been waiting 400 years since Malachi for a word from God. God has been silent to the nation of Israel and they have faithfully kept this feast. And Zechariah's lot gets drawn. It's my turn. Maybe this is the year God will speak to us. Maybe this is the time. And the people start singing. And the hymns of God are sung in the courtyard with instruments and trumpets. There's whole divisions of the Levitic priesthood that are there to lead the worship. And the songs rise up. If you're anywhere in Jerusalem, you hear the songs over in the temple. They echo off the hills. The whole area becomes this church, and it becomes holy and sacred. And at the middle of it, there's this one human guy that knows darn well there's been sin in his heart. So he does all the sacrifices. And the reason there's two other priests is so all he has to do is focus on getting from outside to inside without sin in his heart, right? From the moment of the sacrifice to the incense to the prayer and then get the heck out of there because humans sin. It's in our heart all the time. But his one job is to prepare his entire life to go in there with pure purity so that he can pray before a holy God. Amazing moment to burn the incense. Luke's making reference to this tradition and there's lots of stuff there, but this is a biblical tradition to put this incense. It comes right from Exodus 30. You put a note next to it. Go read the passage. Exodus 30 talks about God commanding people to do this thing. Of all the human traditions that Jesus mocks, makes fun of, and disregards, this is a God tradition that they're doing, and God uses it to, be the in, to initiate this process of Messiah. So the incense gets offered, it's an image of prayer and worship. Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's this tradition that was supposed to be there. It's very public. There's three priests that go in. There's the, the setting of the coals, the arranging of the incense. There's a massive crowd of people outside singing worship. And then when the two priests come out, all the hymns stop. Silence throughout all of Jerusalem, no matter what you're doing, when you hear the hymns stop, just stop and pray to the Lord. So the entire nation, there would be a hush, quiet, and everybody would just be silent before the Lord. And all you're doing is waiting to hear the bells on the little jingle jangle, the pomegranates at the end of his robe, as Zacharias comes out and says, here's what the Lord has said to our people. I'm sure the things that he's praying for inside, to have no wayward thoughts, is that you come in and you're just saying, Lord, bless Israel, bless my family. Um, I don't think Zacharias was praying for a kid. He's advanced in age, which we're going to see here in a little, you know, as, as they pointed out, they're barren. They're way past the point where they're thinking they're going to have a kid. So he's probably not praying, but he's probably praying for Israel and for the people of Israel. 
Um, if his heart is pure when he does it, um, he's praying for the repentance of Israel. He's praying for the sinners. He's praying for the Romans that are ruling over the nation at this time. He's praying for the freedom of Israel to get out from under the bondage of Rome. So there's this, and then here's the scene, right? So he walks into this room. We know that there's a small golden altar, altar about 18 inches big that has that incense. It sits right in the middle. And behind the, behind the incense altar, there is a giant curtain that goes up, I think it was 40, 60 feet high. So the curtain goes all the way up to the ceiling. Like as, it, it is like this feeling and presence of God. All the walls are lined with gold. To the left of them, there's a, a menorah candle, which the candles are lit. And the light from those candles bounce off the gold in this room and create a very, like, atmospheric kind of place. The smoke from the incense is filling it up. But the smoke goes 60 feet into the air, way above where he has to breathe it. To his right is a table with showbread on it, the bread of life. So he's got the light of life to his left, the bread of life in front of him, and the prayer of life, or the table of showbread to the right of him, and the prayer of the saints going up before him. And the veil that protects him from the Holy of Holies right in front of him. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with artistic design of cherubim. On the curtain in front of him, there will be images of angels and cherubim. Uh, stitched with gold fabric all the way up. The veil is a divider between you and between the holy place and the most holy. It's glorious. So this is the moment of sacrifice. This is the peak of his life that he's come in. He's standing before this place. He says his prayer. It's stunning and it's pure. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. It's gone silent. They're all doing their prayers. While this is happening, the songs that he would hear in the background go quiet. And all he can hear is the crackle of the coals on the incense altar. And he says his prayer. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense between the showbread and the prayer. And the angel of the Lord, um, I, I think it's interesting that he doesn't stand in front of the altar. It, it, there's a point here that he stands to the right side. That means when Luke interviewed Zacharias, he made a point of that. The angel stood off to the side. Why? Because nothing gets between God. Angels are messengers. They don't, we don't pray to angels. They don't stand between the Holy of Holies and the altar of prayer. Nothing gets between prayer and God. In fact, the only thing that's there is a veil that God commanded. And what happens at Christ's uh, resurrection? The veil gets ripped 60 feet up and down, all the way down the middle. Now, prayer between God and man is absolutely direct. You pray for something, God hears you, period. So the angel stands to the side at this thing. Verse 12, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. There's no account where people see angels and they're like, hey, how you doing, bud? Angels are terrifying. They absolutely have the power and force of an almighty God as representatives. And they are, for human beings, overwhelming beings. And so there is a deep fear that falls upon him. Here's his fear. Everything he's read growing up is if you do this wrong, you're going to die. So he's looking at the angel thinking, is this how that happens? Like God sent an angel? It looks like he's armed with a sword. Like, is this my moment? Is this how people die in here? So he could be thinking he did something wrong. And if he's a humble guy, he probably is. So he's, and fear fell upon him is what he would have told Luke. And I was terrified. 
I got to tell you, it was not a fun experience. Whatever the angel looked like caused fear, not joy. But here's, but, but here's the thing. An ambassador of God comes with power. But I love this. But the angel said to him, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias. So much power, but so much grace. So much love. Your prayer is heard. You're, in other words, you're not going to die. You actually successfully completed your prayer. Let's just put that to the side, Zacharias. Your prayer has been heard. You've successfully completed your duties. And... Your wife will bury your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. Now I'm thinking this would have been hard to absorb. Like the moment of the day for Zacharias is like he's lived his life for this moment that's already overwhelming. But then to hear that, after you've probably accepted the fact that you're not going to have a kid, your family name won't go on, right in the line of you know his tradition. So first the angel calms him down. Don't be afraid. Second. It confirms that God's heard his prayers. And third, here's the bonus thing, Zacharias. You're going to get something special. That means, and Zacharias would know this as a priest, since Malachi, God hasn't spoken or delivered a message to mankind. Zacharias has to be realizing right now, okay, this just broke 400 years of silence from God. And oh my word. So, and the fact that, you know, Zacharias has to be thinking the name is is special here. So the name John, you're going to name this kid John, it, naming's always been important to God. Always. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. The name of somebody gets changed when they relate to God. But this kid's name isn't going to get changed. It's going to be this name from the beginning, from the birth. So the name God gives is something we often have to dis- discover or find. It's said when we go to heaven, we'll all get new names. But John doesn't have to learn his new name. He gets it from the beginning. And the name John means Jehovah gives grace. And this is grace for Zacharias. It's something he didn't deserve, didn't earn. God's just going to bless him with it. It's the nature of God and a worthy name for John that this is going to happen. Verse 14. (laughs) And again, here's the terror of Zacharias being countered. And you will have joy and gladness. So the presence of the angel might not bring the feeling of joy but the promise of joy is there. And there's a difference between our feelings and what God's promised. And the promises of God should overcome the feelings, what great struggles of maturity in the faith. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for it will be great in the sight of the Lord. You shall drink neither wine and shall drink... Oh, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and also will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. There's our first mention of the Holy Spirit. So no wine requirement is in Numbers chapter 6. It's a requirement for a Nazarite. Nazarites are non-Levites that serve as, as at the temple. But John's going to be an, a Levite, so he shouldn't need to do this. But God's saying, no, I want this guy set apart and consecrated. Even though they're a Levite, they're already set apart. That was the Mosaic covenant. John's going to be set apart in the new covenant. And he's, and he's going to be the first one that gets set apart for God. Jesus says of all the prophets, John the Baptist is the greatest of those. And part of that is he's set apart for God within the covenant of this change that God's bringing. And so he's the first of these people. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Shekinah glory that resides in the temple. So it's an odd thing that this angel is saying that Holy Spirit's going to reside in the person. 
He's going to be a messenger of God and there won't have to be this elaborate thing that Zechariah just got done doing in order to communicate with God. Like John's going to hear from God because the Holy Spirit's right in him. So this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a promise of the Old Testament. It's being fulfilled here. And the word fulfilled, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that word means to be supplied with, to be furnished with, or to be filled up with. He's going to go through his life and have the Holy Spirit just with him. What an amazing thing. Even from his mother's womb, biblically, life begins at fertilization. Biblically speaking, the life or the Holy Spirit being put into a baby in their mother's wombs means that idea of birth or life is clearly in the mother's womb biblically. Every time we see a reference to it, God sees life in the womb as life. As soon as the sperm and the egg DNA come together and make a third set of DNA, that third set of DNA was the map that God put together for that new life. And so we see that that, that image. Here's another example of that. Then verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is quite a calling and a mission. Um, he, will also go, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is, okay, there's tons here. So also, he being the baby will go before him, capital H him there, right? Who's the him? And is this in code where Zacharias doesn't get it? No, no, no. Zacharias has studied the Old Testament. There's only one him that they're looking for. It's the Messiah. And so Zacharias is being told Messiah is going to show up. There's prophecy being fulfilled here. Here's the other thing. He'll come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the other Gospels, it was when Jesus said, who do you think I am? That people are like, people think you might be the spirit of Elijah. You might, you might be the precursor to the Messiah because you're clearly not leading a military revolt. Um, but in Luke, we get right up front, no, the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah was, was John the Baptist. And we get that. And, he's, and right now he's John the baby. But he gets it from in the womb. First Kings 18, Elijah spoke to a nation that was falling away from God. They were ready for judgment. John is going to also speak to a nation and a world that's ready for judgment. And a, and a people that needs something. Both Elijah and John the Baptist will call people to repent and turn to the Lord God Almighty. That's the ministry of John. So it says that John will go before him, not like his dad Zacharias had to go before him, but he's going to go before him wherever he's at. In the wilderness, he's going to go before God. He's going to appeal to Israel on behalf of um of God, and he's going, and, and he'll speak and interact with God without a veil there anymore. The spirit and power of Elijah starts to come. The hearts of the fathers. He's quoting a passage in Malachi four five. If you look at Malachi four five, it's the last couple verses of the Bible of the Old Testament. So from Zechariah's perspective, that word from God ended in Malachi, and now that same word is what picks up in the beginning of Luke. So this is kind of where Luke starts his gospel, is right where Malachi left off. It's interesting when you look at the histories, when the Israel goes to Babylon, there's a 70-year period where we get very little history. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, Fiery Furnace, some stories with Daniel, but we really lose track of the national identity of Israel for 70 years. Then with Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back and we get this big full history again. And it's kind of the same between Malachi and Jesus. There's this 400-year gap where we just don't hear much. There's histories. There's Maccabees. You can go read the Maccabees 
and things like that. But they're clearly not the spirit of the Bible and they don't connect in with the Bible very well. So, but this idea of God speaking to humanity just kind of ends. So when Luke quotes in verse 17, turning the hearts of their fathers to the children, he's actually making a reference to a fulfilled prophecy. Here we are, this is what's happening. And it's been that 400 years, 430 years with nothing from God. And then here this angel shows up and starts quoting Malachi at Zechariah. Kind of cool. And it says, make make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This tells us who the hymn was. The hymn is the Lord is going to come. And Zechariah said to the angel, oh, this is where humans do this. You know, just say, okay. If God ever speaks to you like this, just say, yes, sir. Right? Just cool. I'm on that. Right? And there's some Bible characters that do that, but a lot of Bible characters want this confirmation, like Gideon. I'll lay out the ram's wool, and that doesn't go well usually. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. He's accepted that he's not going to have a kid, and the angel just said he's going to have a kid. He knows the story of Abraham. He should just say, praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to it. But nope, how will I know this? So it's amazing that the fear of Zechariah goes away, likely with the statement, don't fear. And his courage comes back in the face of God. With no witnesses, he's confirming something. So I think maybe, and there's another way to read this, instead of a lack of faith in verse 18, maybe Zechariah actually has his head on straight. Maybe he's got his wits about him. Because if Luke is looking for two witnesses on every major point, how many people are in the room right now? One. And so Zechariah is maybe thinking, I need a second to confirm this prophecy. And I, there's no second here. You know, Elijah had Elisha walking around with him. And so oh, the disciples were told to go out in twos. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, it says, let two or three prophets speak and judge if something's from the Lord or not. And I think maybe Zechariah is like, okay, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What if these things come to be after I'm dead? Who else will confirm that you have just said this to me? So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's a lack of faith. But then you get to verse 19, and the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. Okay, this is not a good start to a response when somebody just identifies themselves. Who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. <laughs> this is like a smackdown. Like, this is absolute, I don't know, I look at this, I'm just going, oh my goodness. First of all, I am Gabriel. We very rarely get the angel's name, right? So when somebody comes up and says, I am Gabriel, here we are. Can somebody look up the meaning of Gabriel in the blue letter? I didn't throw that in here, and I really should have. Zechariah would know the name of Gabriel because it comes from Daniel chapter 8 and verse 16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel's job was to clarify things, to make humans understand the heavenly language. That's what Gabriel was an expert at. He's an expert at getting it straight, and he totally straightens out Zechariah's here. He reprimands him almost. When you need humans to understand something, Gabriel's your guy. He's the angel that will get it through their head. And in other words, like he's the heavenly muscle, right? He's, if you want some, like if you want to get your, if you're in the mafia and you want to get your payment, you send your muscle. 
You know, you want people to understand the relationship here. And I'm not calling God a mafia kingpin, but Daniel's the guy that gets people to figure it out. And that's his job. Daniel 9.21 gives Gabriel wings, so he flies. So likely if this is Gabriel, Zacharias is looking at a man with wings, right? A warrior of God. Or a messenger of God. Man of God. Thank you for looking that up. So with untrustworthy humans, our word needs two or more. With trustworthy Gabriel, he needs no second. That rule of two or more witnesses is because humans lie. Gabriel doesn't lie. So the answer to the question is, I am Gabriel. Do you not understand? I do not lie. Lying for an angel would make them into a demon because they don't tell the truth. So someone, and then further than that, I stand in the presence of God. God can abide no sin. So if he can stand in the presence of God, he is pure to the core. There's nothing about Gabriel that's not loyal and pure and good. And what comes out of his mouth is truth. One of the biggest struggles sometimes for new believers is to make your mouth be something of truth. No lies come out of your mouth. Well, that might get you in trouble once in a while. Now you got to think of diplomacy. Right? So in and, and grace and, and when to talk and when not to, but the tongue is a two-edged sword, but not with Gabriel. And then here's the other thing: who was sent? Who sent Gabriel? God himself. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, who sent me. And 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 here's the other thing: these are glad tidings, Zechariah. I'm coming to you with glad tidings. You should just be accepting to hear them. So this is good news. It's not bad news. And they're on the edge of something that's been predicted for ages. And Gabriel says it, verse 20, but behold, you'll be mute. You're not going to say a word. So maybe this is my thought. Maybe Zechariah said that head is about him. If I'm the only one in this room and I leave here and say an angel talked to me, I, only am, I can only confirm that myself. But So there's two solutions to that. One, have a second person in the room, which is against God's law. Or two, make Zacharias mute. He can't say anything. He can't make a claim. So he can't be doubted and questioned. So making him mute and then until the day these things take place. So he can't speak and give a testimony until everything comes to be. I think that's really interesting. So without another witness, Gabriel prevents Zacharias from saying anything that can be doubted. He will not lose his position. He will not lose his priesthood. He will not be challenged. He will not be brought to court because he won't be able to say anything. So your mouth is going to stay shut. And God's doing this under the radar. He's not making this public until later. And so Zacharias gets his mouth closed by God. And it says they'll be fulfilled. You do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zacharias, you don't get to decide when these things are fulfilled. They will happen and they will be fulfilled in their own time. Because God's timing is a big deal. God's working with something here. Why all of this? Because it's in the Old Testament. All of this is here in Luke because... These are fulfillments of prophecy that are all in one way or the other prophesied in the Old Testament. When we doubt God, God doesn't change his plans and his will. They will move forward regardless of humans. So even Jesus said, if these people don't praise me, the rocks will start to praise me. God will be praised as because that's been the word spoken by God. When God speaks a word, it's instantly true because God can't be untrue. So when God said these things will happen, Zacharias is a a side note. 
It is grace to involve him in what's going on. So when we doubt God, it doesn't change the fact that God has a will and a plan for our lives. And maybe that's going to happen in slightly different ways. So God might take different paths to that destination based on how we behave. I prefer the path of loyalty and blessing and praise and worship and honoring my God, which I think gets that path there without discipline, right? I don't want to be disciplined, therefore I act good. But God will do what he's going to do in my life, and in your life, he'll do the same. Depending on how you respond to him, he will get there nonetheless. So the blessing's going to go forth. These are glad tidings. Zacharias is just going to enjoy those blessings a little bit less because he's going to be mute for a few months. Verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias. <laughs> okay, remember they stopped singing when the prayers started? And then the seconds tick by, and the seconds turn into minutes. And you start to wonder, is he dead? What's going? Boy, this guy can pray a long time. Most priests don't pray a long time in the presence of God. They say their prayers, they get the heck out of there. But Zacharias, he's taking his own sweet time. More minutes pass by. Oh my goodness, what's going on? So the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered for so long in the temple. What's going on? What do you think's happened? But when he came out, he could not speak to them. This is a problem. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So here's what happened traditionally. The priest would come out of the temple and he would say, I have prayed to the Lord. I have prayed for the blessing, and now I'm going to bring the blessing, and I'm going to speak it upon you. What happens at this moment, then, is because he can't speak, he cannot give the blessing that he's supposed to give. So you came there, you're singing songs, you're there, and you just want that blessing every year to come as the priest blesses the nation. You want to be as close as you can get to the front row, so you get the full force of that blessing, maybe. And then all of a sudden, the guy comes out, and he can't speak. No blessing this year. So... That's because the blessing is going to happen back in a womb. So the blessing that God's giving is going to be actually incarnated here. So he stays long enough for folks to think he's died. They start to wonder. And typically, Numbers 624, he's supposed to bless the people, but he doesn't. And so what happens? Like, do the musicians awkwardly start back up, <laughs> right? Like, is there kind of like, a, all right, let's get something going here. And, and But he's frantically, and the word they use is beckoned to them. Like, maybe it's like, you know, and what is he trying, how do you beckon to a people saying, it's, it's good, we're all good, I'm not dead. There's a blessing that's come, you should have glad tidings. So maybe he did, you know, pantomime dancing. Like, how does that look when he's trying to share good news with people without words? That so many people, <laughs> so many people today in the church have gone with this false gospel that you can share the gospel without words. Just live it and people will notice you. No, they won't. They're just going to see a decent person. The gospel requires words. So it was, verse, verse 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed his own house. He departed to his own house. That's, that's genteel language for he went home and he was with his wife. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself for five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people, my reproach among people. So they made a baby. They did it the natural way. She hid herself. That's an interesting thing. Why would Elizabeth hide herself? And this might be because if she runs around saying she's pregnant, people will mock her. You can't be pregnant. You're too dang old. So 
to wait until you're showing, now we can't doubt it because you got physical evidence and you got my word. So you got two things showing that she's pregnant. So there's also a strong connotation here when it says she hid herself. That is also a way to say somebody would hide away with the Lord, like she went to go pray. And something in her said, I need to be praising, praying, worshiping, and I'm just going to go spend five months and be with the Lord. Um, so that could be a way to read that. And then it says, the Lord, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me. So part of the blessing of Zacharias that he would give to the people, if he had his voice, would he would say, and you've heard this passage before, number 625, and the Lord make his face shine upon you, and the Lord give you rest. That's the blessing he was supposed to give. So when Elizabeth is saying this, she's kind of taking the same phrase. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me. When he looked upon me, his face shined upon me. She received the blessing that was supposed to come out of the temple. To take away my reproach among people, Zacharias could have put her away. Um, if you get to be of older age, and we see this in Matthew 19, one of the things the priests were doing, of which Zacharias is a part, is if their wife couldn't make a baby for them, they put her away in divorce, saying she was a sinner. And then they would go take another wife. It was horrible. It was patriarchal in the worst way. And it was something that Jesus spoke against. But Zacharias looked at the old law of marriage, and he never put Elizabeth away. He said, we're going to go to our bed and we're just not going to have children. But I love this woman. She's my wife forever. And that's what real men do. They stick and they stick it out. So here's this guy, Zacharias, that had a culture of people just putting aside wives that don't make babies. And he defied that culture to live in holiness instead and in love with his bride. This is, thus the Lord has dealt with me, Elizabeth says, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Her reproach is that she couldn't make children for Zacharias, who was of a priestly line. And the expectation was children that would continue that line in the Jewish thing. But his contentment with his bride is an image of God's contentment with his bride in the church. He stuck with her. The reproach here then is a plan to take away the reproach among people. There's another way to read this is that John is part of the messianic plan and that plan is to take away the reproach of the people, that she's a part of that plan. And what a way to think about that. And frankly, that doesn't go away for believers today. Again, how does this apply today? You are part of a plan to take away the reproach of sin amongst the people of God. You're in the same way you can celebrate that. So where Elizabeth is too old for children, next we see Mary who's far too young to be having children. In fact, she's a virgin. And so God's doing something special and miraculous with Elizabeth. And when it comes to Messiah, we're going to see something even more special and more miraculous confirmed by witnesses. And Luke's going to go on with that. We'll go on with that, though, next week, I think. Yes. Yes. We'll go on with that next week and we'll pick up from there. Um, and we'll, I don't know, I hope you and we enjoy Luke as much as we enjoy Matthew and Mark, and I have a feeling we will. Um, and we are now on our way. John is on our way, and Jesus is coming next. So we'll see these interviews with Mary, which are pretty cool. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, I think sometimes when we pray, we forget what an honor that was. And prior to Jesus, what a burden that was, that you waited once a year, you hoped for something, and the Jewish people faithfully waited for 430 years to hear from you. What a gift and what a blessing, Lord. We don't have to dress up. We don't have to do meaningless 
um, images of sacrifice and with a real sacrifice of Jesus, we don't need a veil between us because our sins are gone. So Lord, we pray and we come before you and we do it with full reverence and honor. We don't forget what a gift it is to talk to a holy God. Lord, we thank you for Gabriel. We thank you for Zacharias. We thank you for a faithful Elizabeth. We thank you for these characters leading the way for a new gift on earth and the blessing that you came to give. Lord, we thank you for the glad tidings of the gospel, the news that you've come to be a propitiation for sin and a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. May you put a blessing on them. May the Holy Spirit be with them, just like it was with John the Baptist in the womb. May they go forward with joy, with peace. Lord, may the draw of purity be greater than the temptation of sin. And may they be just more excited about what they're doing in your kingdom than they are about anything else. So Lord, change our hearts today, this week, this year. Make us new and make us different than we were. And Lord, we love you. We love your precious gift and your precious son. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.